people want to help, they don't know what they don't know. When someone's arrested, they want the pain to go away and they want the pain to go away fast. And they don't realize that the pain is not going away fast. It is going to last a long, long time. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a very special treat today because I have with me Jeff Grant. Jeff has one of the most unusual stories and unusual professional passions now that I have come across. I had heard of Jeff kind of over the past 12 months or so, and then read an article in the New Yorker about his work, and I asked him if he would take time to visit with me today. So Jeff, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I'm really happy to be with you. So Jeff, could you tell our audience a little bit about your professional background and really what led to your arrest and prison term? Sure. I was a New York lawyer and a great profession for my skill set and for my basic attitude of being combative and being a, uh, a warrior. Very bad for me in terms of bipolar disorder and my alcohol and drug abuse. And in 1992, my recreational use kind of shifted into daily use. I ruptured my Achilles tendon. And I started a 10-year run on Demerol and then Oxycontin, which brought me to my knees. I was able to practice law and become even more successful for the first half of that decade. And then things started to collapse as I couldn't show up and I started to just kind of fall apart emotionally. I wound up commingling funds to make payroll. And that was kind of a countdown to my demise. 9-11 came along and that completed the job in terms of my emotional, me emotionally and my, and my firm's demise. And then I lied on an SBA uh, economic injury disaster loan post 9-11. I lied and said I had a office near ground zero and I got caught and arrested a few years later. But as my ethics complaint uh, moved forward as a result of the commingling The day came where I just had to throw in the towel. I resigned my law license. And that night I tried to kill myself with an overdose of the opiates. So many of us in recovery had an aha moment. I had mine and wondering how I was going to get through this and showing the Lord works in mysterious ways. Two days later, I got intervened on. Mm -hmm. And so that was started me down the road to recovery. But if I could ask you, what was your aha moment? I had a couple of them probably, but my early aha moment was I was in rehab. I was in uh, at Silver Hill in New Canaan, Connecticut, and it was probably my fifth day there. So I was off of illicit drugs and then on some um, psych meds. Actually, I was on lithium at the time. And I bolted up right in my bed and it was in the middle of the night. And I realized for like, it was, I was kind of like this wave came over me that for all the years, I thought that everybody was against me and they were doing things wrong and they were trying to hurt me. And I just realized that I was the one trying to hurt them. I was the one who had been doing things wrong. And I didn't really realize it the whole time. And I just started crying and I ran down the hall to the nurse's station and I was trying to describe, I was babbling. I was trying to describe what was going on. and 
this very kind nurse in the middle of the night just put her arm around me and she said, I know, dear, I, I know. And that was like the turning point that I realized that I was the problem. And it's striking to me. It's crazy how long I, I went through things and did not know that I was the problem. I'd like to now turn to really what drew me to wanting to visit with you and why I think your story is so powerful, which is the Progressive Prison Ministries you founded. Could you tell us yeah. uh, what led to that founding? Well, I went to prison for a white collar crime. When I went to prison, I was about four years sober, almost four years sober. So I went through prison as part of my recovery, really. I was, it's an amazing thing to go to prison sober because most people are drinking or drugging right up to the prison door. And when I got in there, there was a whole different kind of spirituality. There was religion, there was AA, there was NA, and people who'd gotten sober in prison. But if you want to take drugs or drink, the stuff is in prison. I stayed sober and I came out of prison and I started to volunteer at nonprofits, at criminal justice nonprofits and drug and alcohol nonprofits. I loved the work and I wanted to help people more. I certainly had some kind of spiritual awakening, not just through the steps and through AA, but also through my prison experience. And I decided to apply for seminary. So I applied to Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan and I was admitted and I went there for three years, got a Master of Divinity, came out as a reverend, eventually got ordained. And I just wanted to help people who were in the same situation we were in. My, then, my family, my wife, my ex-wife had thrown me out years prior when I first got arrested. So I was then with my girlfriend, now my wife, Lynn, and I was Jewish at the time. And she was Protestant, and I wound up getting baptized and became a minister. And we started this ministry. And it was all kind of pre-internet. You know, now you can get a lot of information. There's a lot of YouTubes. There's a lot of information about going to prison and having a white-collar background. Certainly a lot of information about recovery as well. But back then, there wasn't. We went, I went through it alone. My family went through it alone. So we started this ministry, serve and support people who have been prosecuted for white-collar crimes and their families. About five and a half years ago, we started a support group online. So we were kind of early adopters of online meetings. And it's grown to the point now where we've had almost 400 members. We, this coming Monday will be our 279th weekly meeting on a Monday night. And it's people in isolation all over the country who are have no one to talk to and no one who understands their plight. And some of them have drug and alcohol problems. Some of them have mental health problems. Some of them are just scared and frightened and reach out and we offer them a helping hand, both emotionally and spiritually, and also a lot of practical information as well. So the 12-step program can be used in multiple contexts. You named, the, I think, uh, several AANACA. I've seen it used in, in many other areas, but how can the 12-step approach be used in the context of white-collar criminals and their recovery? Our support group was based on a 12-step program. There's no question that that's my spiritual center. That's what I know. I've been to over 9,000 meetings. I understand it well enough to have adapted it. I think because of the legalities involved and because of, of the issues that people have regarding their sensitivities around the legal uh, the criminal justice system, it kind of has to be a facilitated meeting. 
you know, it can't be like in AA where, where there's no leaders or where you're just passing the leadership around. We have to be careful about the way that we're, we're handling things. I had a lot of experience. I had been a lawyer. Most of the time, I was a minister and I, I only got my law license back. I mean, we're probably jumping ahead, but I did get my law license back this last May. So I haven't been able to offer legal advice to anybody. But you know that just in, course, in the course of sponsoring people or helping people or ministering to them, there's a lot of advice that's passed back and forth and um, very much in a, in a 12-step kind of model, but except without the steps themselves. But the spirit of the steps are there. Although the 12-step process is, was very powerful for me and continues to be powerful, frankly, the fellowship is more important to me. And so I was wondering, how does the fellowship component of a 12-step program work into what you do? Well, the meeting we have on Monday nights is probably the smallest part of what we do from a fellowship standpoint, because people are, are in contact with each other all week long, supporting one another, giving information. There's people who are just coming into the criminal justice system who are reaching out for help, and we find people who have commonality with them. Either they're, they live in the same geographic area, it might be the same crime. If they've been designated to prison, maybe someone who served at that prison. It can be all kinds of things. And we're in contact with one another all week long. It's kind of like, it's the same thing as being an AA. The tools you use in AA are, you know, pick up the phone, call people, stay in the program. And I've used the analogy for my entire almost two decades of, of recovery experience. It's like being a cop. You know, you're on the job 24 hours a day. And being in recovery is being in recovery 24 hours a day. And I worry about people who say, I'm going to AA, because if you're going to AA, that means you can leave AA. And I consider myself in 24 hours a day. And that's kind of what it is in a white collar support group too, because I could wake up and there's 10 texts overnight that I have to respond to of people who've been in crisis, either new people or people who are already in the We also have a Slack channel. And that's going literally 24 hours a day with all kinds of different things, articles, advice, people crying, people, the marital issues, people looking for jobs. And so this is really a 24-hour-a-day support network, which is, I found the same thing in AA. I found people who, if I had a problem, they were always there for me. And certainly if they had problems, it's ask for help and help when asked. It's a beautiful thing beautiful part of my life I did not have before I got sober. Jeff, let me pick up on something you said a little bit earlier, which was the families of these uh, white-collar criminals went through it alone. Certainly in most 12-step programs, the family is a key component of any recovery. It was mm -hmm. in the original big book, The Family Afterwards. How does the family work into white-collar recovery? I would say in many respects, the family's got it worse than the defendant does. They don't know what's going on. They've been usually lied to, or, or the, the person who's been arrested has been leading some form of double life, looking over their shoulder for maybe for years, am I gonna get caught? And then the family's kind of hit, in the, you know, hit between the eyes with something like an arrest, or the FBI showing up at the door with a SWAT team, and which actually happens. I mean, the, this is the real thing. I mean, this is actually what, what happens. You know, they make a, a spectacle out of it. You know, it's the perp walk. So then 
either the family's going to stay together or the family's not. There's a very high incidence of divorce and, and family estrangement in the white collar community, mostly because dad or, or mom, depending on, on who's been arrested, is not the person or has not behaved in the way that the rest of the family uh, thought they were or thought they should, or were led to believe that things were stable when they weren't. And so it's really, really rough on the families. And even the, the form of recovery is not as advanced. In our network, we do have family support groups and things like that. And we do have places for everybody. We, anybody who comes to us, we find a resource for. And it doesn't have to be just white collar because even the definition of white collar is kind of fluid, Tom. It's like, for example, if you had your third DUI or DWI, depending on where you are in the country, and it's a felony, you're going to lose your license to to trade stocks, for example. You could be ostracized from a lot of communities. So is that white collar? I'm not sure it's the definition of occupational crime or of financial crime, but it certainly has the same effect. So what we want to do is we want to provide a, a place of support and comfort for anybody who doesn't have a a built-in support network or, or is estranged from their support networks. So there's a lot of different people who, co who, who come, come to see us. The family members are, for a long time, they were kind of the outliers. Like, we, what do we do with them? We, don't, we didn't know. We had to be around long enough to develop programs and to develop networks for them. And, and we have them now for kids, for grandparents, for, for spouses. And but I can tell you that of families breaking up is just huge. Let me turn to the white collar support group itself. Who is that group open to? And you mentioned perhaps a little bit structure, a little bit different structure in meetings. How are your meetings structured? They're pretty much like what you would expect generally in an AA group. You know, there's an opening. We recite the uh, serenity prayer. Then we go to introductions if there's a new person. So usually people will come on and you don't really know whether or not they're going to open up. They're going to talk about who they are, where they're from. Sometimes they're on camera, sometimes they're not, sometimes they call in. And we're looking to break through the barrier to make them comfortable enough, but we don't force anybody to share anything. So usually what we do is there's usually between say 25 and 30 people on, and we have three or four people introduce themselves who've been around long enough to really speak with candor and to and who are comfortable enough saying some difficult things about themselves. So then the new person will usually say something, even if it's just hello. Sometimes they go into their entire story. From there, we go to announcements and resource sharing. And there's usually a lot of announcements about what's going on in the prisons, especially in the pandemic, because there's quarantine issues and there's visitation issues and there's people who are coming home and acts of Congress now that have, have changed the dynamics of who goes to prison and who comes home from prison and when. All that information we share with one another and we share back the actual conditions in the prisons themselves because there's people who are put into quarantine and they're put into segregation. They're put into solitary, perhaps. And the information about those particular prisons and, the, and the, all the anecdotal information kind of compiles into a picture of what's going on. Then we have someone who does a topic lead, and the topic lead can be something kind of ethereal or something esoteric, or it can be very, very practical, like the food in prison. Or it can be on, for example, last week was on loss and suffering. And 
that was a beautiful, beautiful conversation because there's many facets of loss and suffering and, and people were talking about the things they lost and, and how they've you know, chosen to suffer until they turned into looking for help. And then the, mem- and the members share after the lead, put their names in chat and we kind of just go down. We try to end the meeting promptly at, at the 75 minute mark. So it goes from on East, in Eastern time from seven to 8.15, but we have people who log on from all over the world now. And then uh, we close and, and we encourage everyone to reach out to one another and, and to share. So I was really intrigued by some of the information on your website, one of which was that or how the White Collar Support Group can help attorneys struggling to cope with a broken justice system. How does or how can you use the support group in that context? This could be a podcast unto itself. And in fact, I lecture on this a lot, a lot easier now that I have my law license back. Because I'm invited to law schools to lecture. I'm lecturing at the Delaware Bankers Association Trust Conference next week down in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And a lot of the issues are about professionals, attorneys, and not just attorneys, but also kind of the, in the entire arena, you know, the entire ecosystem of white collar justice, of people understanding what the human components are, what it actually is to be in the shoes of someone who's been prosecutor for white collar crime, what their traumas have been, perhaps whether it be drug addiction or mental health issues. We deal with mitigation experts and forensic accountants and investigators. And we try to bring a full picture to a very, very complicated situation that people tend to want to paint with a very broad brush. You're a bad guy. You're not a bad guy. You're someone who betrayed people's trust. And it's, of course, it's more complicated than that. These are people. And the media generally has not been uh, very kind to people who've been prosecuted for white collar crimes because there's a lot of sensationalized journalism. Although I can tell you that the articles about our group have been generally very kind. And we try to be careful because there's a, there are people out there who will exploit us. But For the most part, people who are interested in our story, like yourself, are intrigued. You know, this is something interesting. What's going on here? And there's been very few, even prosecutors, probation officers, judges, defense attorneys who reach out to us. And this happens kind of all the time. They want to learn more and they want to know how they can integrate what we've learned, kind of our lived experience, our experiential theology, how they can integrate it into being more just and more merciful and more, perhaps more lenient in the work they do. So that's a blessing when that happens. So let's turn to now your law practice, Grant Law. Could you tell us the type of practice you have now and what areas do you specialize in, in addition to what we've discussed around recovery? Yeah, well, it's kind of crazy that I'm getting to talk about myself as a lawyer again after all these years. In fact, I'm going to the American Bar Association white collar conference in Miami at the end of the month. And I haven't been to a legal conference in 23 years. So, you know, I actually get to put a suit on and, and show up. So that, well, I guess you don't put suits on for conferences anymore. But the point is, is that I had to figure out why I wanted to be a lawyer again, why I wanted to go through the reinstatement process. And really what it was, was is an extension of the ministry. I want to help people. And I don't want to get caught up in any of the, of the issues that I used to have about money or about 
huge amounts of overhead because I had a lot of people working for me 20 years ago. And now what it's about is just dealing directly with people. And formerly, I was a general counsel to a lot of small businesses and specifically a couple of mid-sized, medium-sized real estate companies. I was their go-to guy. Now, not only did I do the stuff internally, mergers and acquisitions and refinancing, they were real estate companies. So there was a lot of things to do internally, but also there were lawyers everywhere, landlord, tenant lawyers and, and finance lawyers and litigation litigators. There were lawyers and I was the I was the hub. I was the guy who hired the lawyers. I was the guy who looked over their work. I was the guy who integrated everything. I was the paymaster. I looked over their bills with grant law and I am general counsel again, but generally to businessmen who are in crisis or perhaps it's a white collar crisis, but not necessarily a white collar crisis. It could be an administrative crisis. It could be a, a partnership type of crisis. You know, there's always the edge as to whether or not things are going to be transactional or they're going to turn to some kind of litigation or maybe just some kind of prosecution. And to have someone around who's really been through it all, who understands the transactional sides of things and the litigation sides, sides of things, I mean, that's a gift I've been given that I can now translate to clients. So I work with white collar criminal attorneys all the time now. So I'm the guy who's doing everything but the criminal defense. But I've never met anybody, over 500 people I've worked with who are going through white collar criminal situations. I've never met one who didn't have many more complicated issues in their life than just the criminal issue. You know, they have bankruptcy issues and divorce issues and partnership issues. And heretofore, nobody really specializing in all these things that are swirling around a person who's being prosecuted. So I said, not only have I been through all these things personally, but I've counseled people through them for all these years now. Let's see if there's a way to specialize. Well, I can't use the word specialize. Let's see if there's a way to form a practice around that. And the answer has been, yeah. I mean, it's been incredible, the kind of outreach. Now, maybe it's because of all the media that we've attracted, but people are hurting and they need people to trust. And if someone's going through a criminal justice problem to actually find a lawyer who has the empathy and the experience to have been through it before. For many people, it's a gift. Well, it's certainly a gift for me to be able to help them. So I would say that's really the backbone of what the practice is, is doing all that stuff that swirls around them. But also, I have clients from 20 years ago who've come back. It's unbelievable. They've called me up and said, we can't believe you're back in business. We did great work 20 years ago. Let's go. I have clients from 20 years ago who've come back. So I was wondering if you might be able to share with us an example or two of your favorite case you handled at Grant Law, where you're able to bring in these wide variety of topics with a law angle that you could share with us. You know, I can't talk about any particular case. So here's an example. Someone came to me and they were concerned that their white collar lawyer wasn't doing the job. You know, white collar lawyer, I mean, a criminal defense attorney wasn't doing the right job for them. And I asked them, well, how did you find this? And they said, well, I called my brother-in-law who knows a lot of lawyers. I said, well, what does he know about finding a white collar lawyer? And the thing is, is that people want to help. They don't know what they don't know. When someone's arrested, they want the pain to go away and they want the pain to go away fast. And they don't realize that the pain is not going away fast. It is going to last a long, long time. But they want to find a lawyer. Maybe they need to find a lawyer 
quickly because there are things happening that have to be dealt with pretty quickly, arraignments or whatever it happens to be. But then it's a pretty long, slow process. And it's not like you need to make a decision in those first few days as to who the right lawyer is, who's going to take you all the way through. And yet people commit because they really want the pain to go away. Then they wake up three months later, six months later, and they're scratching their heads again. You know, maybe I don't really like this guy so much, or maybe this team is not the right person for me, or maybe I can't really afford to go the distance. Because you know, in, in this country at least, basically you have to be able to afford the lawyers that you're hiring, and you got to be able to afford for them to go all the way, whatever all the way means. If it there's very few trials. So usually what it means to is to plea to sentencing and you got to get them all the way there. So he came to me and he said to me, I'd like your opinion as to, have, as to whether I have the right lawyer. So I, I reviewed all the documents and I started asking questions. And the questions I asked are, I think, reasonable questions. They're the questions not only would a lawyer ask, but I think a businessman would ask. Uh, someone who if a lawyer's job is to marshal resources you know, f- from experts and to get reports done and to get evidence prepared and to be able to present it to a prosecutor, if, for example, what they're trying to do is to make a plea deal, you've got to actually got to do the work. You've got to hire the people to get the work done. You've got to get the experts. But these lawyers hadn't hired any experts. And now they're like two years into the case, and they hadn't hired any experts. And I asked them, what are you going to use? You're just going to talk off the top of your head. What's your plan? And I didn't like the answers I was hearing. And this is not an indictment of an entire, an entire profession. It just happens. I didn't like the answers I was hearing. And, and my job was to be candid with the client and tell them, look, I don't like what I'm hearing. I think maybe it's in your best interest to at least get a second opinion from another criminal defense lawyer. Well, he did. He wound up changing lawyers. I probably had a great deal to do with at least starting that ball rolling. He wound up resolving his matter rather quickly from that point because it was an entirely different strategy going forward. And he did pretty well. He did better than he thought he would, or at least better than he was led to believe that he would. But of course, all of that information is kind of in a black box. You really don't know what truth is unless you start to ask reasonable questions like, what's the plan? And if you're taking my money, tell me what I'm getting for the money. People don't ask the right questions and because they don't know that they can or what they've done. They give away all their agency. They're afraid. You know, they want to be liked as opposed to getting what they need. So added that degree of kind of C-suite skill to the person who's really the chief executive of his own case. He's got to, I mean, you can hand the helm over to someone, but you got to be the captain of your own ship. Otherwise, no one else is going to care more than you. So I was able to do that. That's just one example. And I think that for a very minimal investment, there's a lot of value. And at the same time, I was able to help him organize a lot of the other things that were going on in his life like partner disputes. And what happens when you go away to prison, for example, and you have a business and you're not allowed to transact business in, in prison, but you have partners who now they may be looked at by the, by the government, maybe not. And negotiations have to happen with these partners. And so we were able to successfully work our way through that 
so that this guy is actually going to have a business when he comes home because his partners are going to shepherd the business through while he's away. I would say that all was a very big win, but it's kind of standard. Having a good set of eyes or a fresh set of eyes is, is often a good thing. Jeff, what do you say to the lawyer or what advice might you give to a lawyer who has substance abuse issues, broader mental health issues, who's not yet been arrested or had to go into the criminal justice system? What do you tell the lawyer who's struggling with some of the basic problems that you and I have faced over the years? Well, I think that there's, there's kind of two answers to that. There's the answer, of course, nobody gets sober unless they want to get sober, right? And sometimes you have to hit a bottom or, or maybe usually you have to hit a bottom until you're willing to, until you can wake up and opt for sobriety. I mean, for in my case, there was no place else that would have me. I didn't have to worry about people, places, and things because I lost all my people, all my places, and all my things. But for someone who's still lying to themselves or under the delusion that things are okay, there's probably nothing that I could do until they come for help. But if they've come for help and they've made that leap, then there's the actual sobriety side, which you and I both know that there's ways to 12-step people, there's ways to help people. And then on the professional side, most states and most bar associations have lawyer services now that they're pretty sensitive. You know, I mean, it probably depends upon the state, but they're pretty sensitive to mental health issues now, and they're pretty sensitive to substance abuse issues. They really will try to help. And I think that in terms of licensure, if, if, if attorneys have wandered over the line into a place where their licenses might be at, at stake or they could be prosecuted, I think early disclosure and acceptance of help from the profession could be a huge mitigating factor in terms of the, you know, the ultimate issues that are going to happen if there's a disciplinary proceeding or if there's a, a, a criminal proceeding. I wish I had known about it. It was only in its infancy 20 years ago when I was going through it. I guess really when I said maybe 25 years ago, it was only in its infancy. But now there are really advanced programs for lawyers who have these issues and who are willing to seek the help. So I would definitely turn them towards those. Jeff, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your practice, your white-collar group, where could they go? For legal help, it's grantlaw.com. And if you want to wonder why I, I got the name Grant Law, it's because I've been paying for that domain for 20 years in the event I ever got my law license back. So it's grantlaw.com. And all my information is there. And if they want help on the ministry side, it's prisonist.org, prisonist like feminist. And two websites, they interact a little bit, lots of information. And there's a 24-hour outreach on the prisonist side. And we just want to help people. And we want to you know, help guide them through to better, more fulfilling, and healthier places in the world. Jeff, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed uh, visiting with you. I am going to make one request that I hope we can continue this dialogue into the future. Tom, I would love that. And th thank you for, uh, you know, for opening this, this channel and this portal for people who are suffering. You, know, uh, you and I both know that it's the hardest thing in the world for most people to get sober and get the most rewarding and 
definitely the thing I'm most proud of in my life is my sobriety. So, uh, you know, I know you have almost 25 years. So, you know, uh, congratulations on that and God bless you. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.